Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. All righty. That's awesome. How are you doing this morning, Christ Community Church? We good? Good. Well, pray for me because I'm not. Um, that, it was cool to see all the graduates, but um, we've been, Megan and I have been gone for the last two weekends. Uh, we've been traveling a lot. Two weekends ago, we were in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where Megan was speaking at the Renew Conference. And um, I always travel with her, either myself or her sister, if she's available, travels with her because. You know, she doesn't meet uh, with people one-on-one. -on -one. That's just kind of a policy she has, unless it's family or members of the Bold Movement, stuff like that. So uh, we were in Louisville for that two weekends ago. And then last weekend, we were at a, um, at a conference overseas. Every year, the organization that Megan works for, one of the organizations she works for, um, the Solomon Foundation, they hold a pastor's conference. And you may or may not know this. I think it's really cool. What Solomon does is that all the pastors they're connected with, they invite to like a week-long conference. And so the mornings you go to meetings and hear speakers and that kind of stuff. And the afternoons you have off and the evenings they buy you dinner. And the, one of the reasons for that is the pastors they're connected with, what Solomon does is they establish loans with growing churches but pretty new churches. And some of you are old enough to remember when Christ Community Church was new back in 1970, in the early 70s. And, you know, you have this crowd, and all of a sudden you need a building. The problem is you have no money. And so they make sure that these growing churches get the loans for the facilities that they need. But then that doesn't mean that the church automatically has money to pay the pastor. You know, it's the old adage they tell you in, in seminary that the churches will, will say to you, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. You know, and so that's the way it is. And so pastors don't get a lot of vacations. And so they, you know, will basically put them up at a resort for a week and just kind of love on them and all that kind of stuff, which is really, really cool. And so that was all well and good, and, uh, but... You know, here's the deal. We're around like 200 people, pastors and wives, all week long. My wife is an extrovert, which means that spending 12 hours with hundreds of people, whether she knows them or, or barely knows them, makes her want to do cartwheels. She loves it. It just energizes her. She is ready to go. Me, I'm the exact opposite. It wears me out. And then on top of that, our plane ride, well, let's put it this way. The delays were such because of storms in the south and so forth, we got in at, we got to the hotel at 3.30 a.m. So I'm tired. <laughs> and so I love you all, but this is going to be short, no amens. And I'm going to go home and collapse for a few weeks. Um, so where were we? Well, Chris, you got that video? This is what she was doing while I was trying to recover. That's her and her friend Kim Smith who's on her, the Bold Movement board. 
Now, this is what's called parasailing. It's a bucket list item. I always tell her she can pick one bucket list item at the conference to go do. She calls it parasailing. I call this fly fishing for sharks. Because you're just bobbing your butt in and out of the water going, bite me. I mean, that's what you're doing. So, all right, that's enough. She's uh, That's what she was doing this week. So, but we just had, it was a great week. It was a long week. We, we made uh, some, some really cool things maybe in the works there. So we'll see what happens. We are wrapping up the case for Christ. And before I jump into that, just real quickly, I had more time last night. I'm not going to go into it much uh, this morning. Uh, as you guys know, in a previous life, before I became a full-time pastor, I was a, a lawyer. But my, what you may not know is most lawyers focus their practice, right? They, they concentrate their practice. And so uh, people come up and ask me all the time about like wills or legal guardianships. And I'm like, dude, I was a constitutional lawyer. That's like going to a podiatrist to ask about your heart problems. I mean, it just doesn't make any, any sense. I had a very focused practice. And so I practice constitutional law. I've already had all kinds of questions about Roe v. Wade. I'm not going to go into it this morning. If you have questions, I'd be happy to uh, try to help you out with that. I've taught about it for years. I've lectured on it for years, all that kind of stuff. And so if you have a, a question, you can shoot me a message or something like that. But I want to say before we wrap up the case for Christ, next week we begin a new series called The Gospel Project. Now, the Gospel Project is a really neat thing, and the, if you go on like Lifeway, you can find Gospel Project study Bibles and Gospel Project devotionals and all that other kind of stuff. And the kids will be doing it too, because this is what we're going to do as much as we can. And I've said this before, but it, yeah, I think it deems repeating. We want to coordinate as much as we can what we teach up here from the pulpit with what the kids are being taught back there, so that those of you who have kids or grandkids are prepared to have discussions with them during the week. And we think that's important because, again, you know, and Megan said this at one of her breakout sessions when she was speaking this week to pastor's wife. She said, you know, we get your kids for maybe an hour a week. Hour and 15 if dad's preaching. Hour if I'm preaching. We get them for about an hour a week. Now, we cannot disciple them, especially in this culture, one hour a week. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to disciple your kids. You're going to have to look and see what they're doing, and we'll try to help you out from here so that you can have those conversations and help your kids. We want to make sure that this church is not part of the 80% of young people who are leaving the faith once they go to college. We think that's vitally important. So that starts next week with Genesis 1 and 2. Not sure if I'll be preaching or, or Dad will be preaching, but be Genesis 1 and 2 if you want to go ahead and start reading. So that's next week. All right, let's talk about the case for Christ. Now, I hope that you picked up one of the books. I hope you read it. I hope you will reread it over and over again until you really get a firm grasp on what's in here. Because this can help you lead people to Christ as well as guard your own faith. Now, I hear this all the time when I bring up my love of apologetics, the, Christian, the defense of the Christian faith. People will say, you cannot argue someone into heaven. I will agree only to this. Maybe not argue, but you can converse them into heaven. 
You can have gracious conversations about this. If it delves into an argument, a red-faced argument, no, you're not going anywhere. But if you're having a discussion over coffee or, or, or dinner or something like that, yes, it can go somewhere. And I remind people of this. Some of the greatest leaders in church history were conversed into their faith. Easily, most church, church historians agree that from the time the Apostle Paul died until the time guys like Martin Luther showed up, in that 1,500-year period, the smartest guy who ever walked into a church was named Augustine. Augustine was reasoned into the faith. He did not, was, he was converted through conversations. C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, greatest Christian writer of the 20th century, was an atheist. But he had friends who were Christians, one of them J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And they would have discussions back and forth. And the story goes, now it's hard for me to imagine C.S. Lewis, professor at Cambridge in England, one of the best-selling Christian authors of all time, but he said he came to faith riding his motorcycle to the London Zoo. I have a hard time picturing C.S. Lewis on a Harley, but apparently he was. And he was going over all these conversations he'd had with his buddies like J.R. Tolkien and others. And he was thinking about all the objections he had listed as, as an atheist and as a World War I veteran with what they then called shell shock, which we now call PTSD. And C.S. Lewis sat there and went through all the objections and realized they had the better argument. He didn't have any more objections. And he said, well, I guess I'm a Christian now. And praise God for that, for what he has produced. A guy who's been here several times, Detective J. Warner Wallace, like his buddy Lee Strobel, who wrote this book, what happened? They both jumped into the Christian faith to examine it, to see if they could disprove it, and they ended up becoming Christians themselves. Now, I know we live in an age where a lot of people don't want to talk about reason and logic and evidence. You know, you see this, I see this on the news all the time. They'll even be interviewing a member of Congress, and they'll start off with, well, I just feel, well, I think. When it comes to matter of fact, and especially in matters of eternal, you know, where you spend eternity, I don't care what you feel. And God's not going to alter his plans from the beginning of time based upon how you feel. What is the evidence? What's the evidence? Where does it lead? And not only that, you need to understand something. We are commanded by Scripture to know this stuff and to use this stuff. Commanded. 1 Peter 3.15 Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, King of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, when it says there, as a believer, always be ready to explain it. The New Living Translation, what it actually says is always be ready to defend it. The word there is apologia, where we get the word apologetics. 
always be ready to explain it. But this is where the conversation, not argument, comes in. Verse 16. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Now, why does Peter say defend it? You've got to remember that we are closer to the early church right now than we have been in over a thousand years. In this sense, we live in what is largely a secular pagan culture. After COVID, church attendance dropped roughly 15-20% across the nation. And people, more and more people who even identify as Christians do not believe biblically. biblically. Their beliefs are anchored in, I think, I feel, instead of what Scripture says. Now, why would Peter want you to do this? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a command to all the church. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says all of us, all of us must give an account at the end of times whether or not we have gone out and made disciples, whether we have obeyed his commands. Well, folks, you can't make disciples if you don't make converts first. They have to be converted before they can be discipled. They have to believe before they can grow. And how do you get there? By answering their questions gently and respectfully, and they will have tough questions. And that's why this is so important, vitally important. And I have seen this happen, and I've heard this happen. I remember years ago, I was at a conference, and Professor D.A. Carson was speaking and I have great respect for Dr. Carson. Taught for years, decades at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. PhD from Cambridge, speaks 12 languages, all that kind of stuff, brain like this. And he talked about being a pastor shortly after he earned his PhD and he was pastoring in Vancouver, British Columbia. And a young woman in his church started dating this guy. And he was worried because he said this was a very, very beautiful and personable young woman. And she, he did not know, is this person she's dating a Christian or not? And he explained to her that if this gets serious and you guys ended up getting married, the Bible says you should only marry a fellow Christian. And she said, oh. She said, well, why don't you talk to him? And he said, okay. And for the next, like, six to eight weeks, he spent every Saturday night after writing his sermons for Sunday morning having coffee with this guy and answering his questions. And he was a college student. He was a college athlete. He was, but he was a good student, and he, he had good questions. What about the theory of evolution? How, what about why do we know that Jesus is the only way? All these questions. And so Dr. Carson walked through all of this with him. And then the guy looks down at his coffee and goes, looks up and goes, okay, I'll be a Christian. You answered all my questions. I've got nothing left. When do I get baptized? This happened here. 
There's a person who comes to this church. He doesn't come on Sunday mornings. He goes to Saturday service. And I, I was trying to get through to him and trying to get through to him. And when Jay Warner Wallace was here, my wife had the idea, let's drag him along and let him talk to Jim about his questions. And so they sat there for an hour. And the next week, my dad and I had dinner with him. And he said, okay, I don't have any objections left. When do I get baptized? And he's been here ever since. It's not just feelings. It's not just, you know, it's not just we got a great children's ministry. It's not just we've got Ralph Clay, which is big. You know, it's not just all of that. People have serious questions, and they deserve answers. So, for example, and this is wrapping up section three of the case for Christ. Some of the questions that, that, that Lee uh, Strobel raised when he was an atheist. Here's one, and you will see this every Easter on History Channel, Lifetime, all that kind of, whatever. You'll see A&E, you'll see it all over that. you got a guy by the name of John Dominic Crosson who has for decades argued that in the Roman Empire, when they crucified someone, here's how it would go down. They would crucify you, then they would take your body down once you were dead, and then they would take your body and they throw it into a shallow grave. And so Crossan argued that what happened was when Jesus died, he was taken down, he was thrown into a shallow grave, his body disappeared probably because he was eaten by wild dogs. This is what John Dominic Crossan argues. But then thank God for scholars like N.T. Wright who came along and he debated Croissant on this. And he said, hold on a second. You got serious problems here. Some of which we've already covered. Why would the disciples preach it if it didn't happen? We covered that. There's no motive to do it. There's no, it, it makes, they got nothing but misery, poverty, and death from it. They were all threatened with their lives. They would just say, you'll have your life. If you recount, you, you will just say, you never saw Jesus rise from the dead. And they all said, can't do that, because I did. But the biggest problem that N.T. Wright points out is this. Bodies weren't thrown into shallow graves in Israel. Even Pontius Pilate, who was a monster, knew well enough that the Jews were very, very tricky. About, they were very sensitive about how you dealt with the bodies of their fellow countrymen. The bones were to be placed in a grave with the family, and that's how it was to be done, which Croissant had no real response to, other than, well, the Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus, which Wright's response was, well, that means the Jewish people probably did. There would have been a riot. And Pontius Pilate's whole job given to him by the Roman Empire was, don't let there be any riots, just keep the peace. And that's why he so quickly agreed, to, yeah, you want to go put him in Joseph's grave, go for it. And so it doesn't make any sense. Or you have what I've mentioned before, the divine swoon theory. The divine swoon theory is that Jesus never actually died. They just thought he was dead. Give me a break. The Romans were experts in torture and death. Absolute experts. For example, when Jesus was young, probably about the time he was going off to do stone-cutting work in Caesarea, 
there was a, a revolt. There are many Jewish revolts, but this one revolt, the Romans really came down hard on. They crucified so many people, the road from Nazareth to Caesarea was lined with people dying on the cross. They did this on a regular basis. They did this almost on a weekly basis. They knew how to kill people. Because the cross was always a message from the Roman Empire to all the subjects of the Roman Empire, we're in charge, don't cross us. That's not a pun. They did this constantly. And they would do whatever they had to do. Like in the Gospels, it says they were trying to speed up the death, so what did they do? They broke the legs of the two thieves, and they were getting ready to do it to Jesus. Why? Because then you couldn't push up to get a breath. You can't get a breath. We've got medical professionals here. How long does that last? Not long. They knew how to do it. They knew how to do it. Then we've got the evidence of 1 Corinthians if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9, Paul writes this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, and he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Now, why is that significant? First of all, I want you to notice kind of the, the repetition he says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Now, if you could read Greek, and this was written in Greek, not that I recommend it. It's a tough language. But almost every scholar I've ever read who has put their mind to 1 Corinthians said, this is part of a, what they call an ancient creed, or otherwise an ancient hymn. This was not something Paul made up on his own. This was something Paul is repeating from the church, which means this was very early. Very, very early. And when you talk to ancient historians, one of the things they tell you is, if you're looking to see whether or not something trustworthy, earlier the better. Closer to the event, most probably more reliable. Make sense? So we've got that. And there's just, just keep stacking evidence on evidence on evidence on evidence. Here's something really interesting that Lee Strobel points out in his book. In, all, in every single leading figure in the ancient world, I mean people who were considered giants. I'm not sure if we have giants anymore. You know, we kind of look at our history in America as Washington was a giant, Lincoln was a giant. And so, if you look at the ancient world, they'd say Alexander the Great was a giant. Julius Caesar was a giant. And if you go and look at all the different ancient stories that popped up in the 100 years, 200 years, 300 years 
after their lives, they get more elaborate. They, they just expand, all this other kind of stuff. And no one can ever agree on where they're buried. And there's a reason for that. And this even happened in Israel for a while. You'd go, where is the prophet Isaiah buried? Well, Alan says over here. Stan says over here. Herb says over here. Which one is it? I don't know, but they all charge you five bucks to get in. But that's not, that never happened with Jesus' tomb. If you read the case for Christ, this one ancient historian goes, I've never seen anything like it in all of history. There are no competing legends. There's no competing death narratives. There's no competing resurrection narratives. Nothing in the ancient world. And everybody agrees where the tomb is. If you go to Israel, and I've been, some of you have been many times with dad in the past. They go, it's right there. How do you know? There's a marker. It's right there. Everybody agreed in antiquity. That's where he was buried. Now, why is that also important? Because if this was all an elaborate hoax by the apostles, what would the Jewish leaders and Roman leaders do when the disciples started preaching, he is risen? Pilate would have said, go get some Roman soldiers, get his body out of there and show everybody he's dead. But they couldn't do that. Why? And then Paul says in this, in verse 6, After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now, why does he say that? In the ancient world, that's called an invitation. He's saying, we've got eyewitnesses, many of which are still alive. You don't want to believe me. Go talk to them. Now, if you're making this stuff up, that's not what you do. What does this all mean? I'm tired, I'm sick, I'm sweating, i got to wrap this up. I've got to that point where I just hit 50 while I was gone, by the way. Long plane rides stink. I can do like the 45 minutes from Columbus to Philadelphia, no problem. Even the two plus hours to Miami wasn't bad. But then you tack on the four hours to get to Aruba, six and a half hours on a plane. You get to my age, your butt hurts. Um, I'm tired. But you take all this stuff and you start to stack it up. This is what in apologetics is called the evidential approach. You've got this piece of evidence, 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 and you just keep stacking it up. It's what you do in a court of law. It's what I would do as a lawyer. Is you present all this stuff. And when you present all this stuff, the simple fact is, as a historian, and every piece of ancient history is always what is more probable. It's hard to come down on what is absolutely factual. We know it. Everybody agrees on it. Nobody can disagree with that. Everything is probability. Like, let me give you an example from American history. One of the most famous speeches given in American history was Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right? Some of you had to learn it in school. Now, there, is, there are no recordings, could not have been any recordings. There is one blurry photo of Lincoln sitting down at Gettysburg. 
How do we know that he actually gave that Gettysburg Address? Well, the first question is, why would you fake it? Why would you, doesn't make any sense, right? There's no reason to lie about it. Lincoln himself wrote in his own journal, he thought the speech stunk. Now, I'm a little more skeptical about that whole George Washington and the cherry tree and not being able to tell a lie. That sounds made up. And that didn't pop up till way after. But when you look at the probability, as J. Warner Wallace likes to say, everything is possible, but not everything is probable. When you look at the probability, the probability that this, the Bible was just all made up makes no sense. It's just more probable than not. And you have to present this. You can't just ask me to present it. I will help you if I can. But you guys know, unbelievers, that I don't. They have, their relationships are with you. Their trust is with you, not me. So you have to do this stuff. J. Warner Wallace says this all the time. He says, people come up, buy his book, he'll sign it, and he'll say, I can't wait to give this to my unbelieving nephew. And Jim always tells him the same thing. Your unbelieving nephew's not going to read it. You have to read it, and you sit down and talk about it with your unbelieving nephew. That's the only way this works. You have to do this. I will help you as much as I can, but you have to do this. They don't know me. They don't trust me. And once they find out I'm a lawyer, they're really not going to trust me. So you have to do this. And you are called to do this. Every single one of us needs to remember every single day that if we're saved, what was the price paid for our salvation? Jesus Christ died on the cross to take the penalty for the sins of everyone who would place their faith in him. And then he turns around and he gives his perfect life to you so you're judged by his life and not your own. Out of gratitude, out of sheer gratitude for the eternity that you have that you did not earn, you should want to do this because this is what your king wants you to do. One ancient Christian writer said, would you, would you trust a dog who didn't bark to defend its owner? What are you going to do when the faith is under attack? And you've got to get around this whole, I feel, I think, I, ah, who cares? The evidence is the evidence. You may feel that one plus one equals three, you're still wrong. The facts are the facts. The evidence is the evidence. And the simple fact is the one question, the one question everybody on earth who has ever lived is living or will ever live has to answer before they die is, who is Jesus? I hope that if you have people in your life who are unbelievers, that you, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, would be grabbing at their ankles and begging for them not to go into an eternity where they will be away from God 
and from you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are still continuing to find people who are unbelievers and somehow put someone in their life that sends them down a journey, a search, a quest for who your son is and that they arrive at the only answer, that your son is Lord of the universe and he is Savior to all of his church that he will rule and reign forever and that if they come to faith in you they will be with him always thank you we praise you in Jesus name we pray amen I love you guys but I'm going to go home and collapse see you next time Christ Community Church located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.